This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel 17. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known in all of the Bible. It's one of the most well-known in all the world, but I think it's a lot like the Christmas story, and that is people are familiar with the story itself, um, but often miss the meaning and significance of it. So uh, as we jump into this, I I recognize that for many of you, it's it's a very, very familiar story, but resist the urge to think to yourself, oh, David and Goliath, (laughs) I know that one. I'll work on my shopping list for the week. So let me set the stage here. Israel's archenemy, the Philistines, were encamped on one hill. The Israelites were encamped on an adjacent hill with the Valley of Elah, literally the Valley of Death, in between them. A champion soldier by the name of Goliath emerged from the camp and began taunting the people of Israel, hurling at them insult after insult. And this continued for 40 days. King Saul and the Israelites were crippled with fear. God had blessed a man by the name of Jesse with eight sons. The three oldest had enlisted in Israel's army. The youngest, David, was a shepherd. In the middle of Goliath's 40-day rant, Jesse sent David on an errand to deliver sandwiches to his older brothers on the front lines. Now, upon arriving there, David got his first glance of the warrior Goliath, but his response to him was unlike the response of Saul and Israel. The first words out of David's mouth is a bold question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Then David goes on to say, let no one lose heart over this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So David snatched up five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch, took his sling, and marched out to face Goliath. And the rest of the story, we all know. We know very well. David took a rock from his pouch, put it in a sling. He hurled it at the giant, hitting him in the forehead with such force that it sank into his head and he fell to the ground dead. Now, what can we say about it? That's the story, but what can we say about it? As is the case with most texts, this could be preached from a number of different angles. But today we're going to look at one of the themes that emerges from it, the theme of courage. We're going to look at courage under these three headings this morning. We're going to look at missing courage, false courage, and true courage. Missing courage, false courage, and true courage. First, missing courage. This is demonstrated in Israel and Saul. And actually, the point of the first 31 verses of chapter 17 is to show us that everyone had lost heart. 
Goliath had marched out onto the battlefield like a bully on the playground and with his boisterous bravado had taunted Israel for 40 days. And the text says that Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now Saul is the king. In fact, when he was coronated, he was described as being a head taller than everyone else. So Saul himself is actually an imposing figure. A chiseled, good-looking guy. He's a perfect candidate to go out and fight Goliath. But the narrator tells us that he, along with all Israel, were terrified. They exemplify missing courage. But what is courage? What is courage? When David came onto the scene, he makes an interesting statement. He says, let no one lose heart. Let no one lose heart. Literally, don't let your heart fall back. Don't let your heart fall away. It's imagery of warfare. It's imagery of a battle. He's thinking of a battle. The key to winning a battle is the ability to stand your ground, not to fall to the ground, not to run away. You've got to be able to stand your ground when the onslaught comes. Now, to flesh this out further, let's think about another example of courage in the Old Testament. I'm sure many of you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. They refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's Uh, image of gold. And what happened? Well, let's read it. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Okay, so what are we gleaning from David, from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the topic of courage? Well, on one level, we're we're understanding that if I do the selfish thing, I'll be safe. If David does the selfish thing, he'll be safe. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do do the selfish thing, they'll be safe. If you do the unselfish thing, you may not be safe. You might be safe. You may not be safe. Courage is the ability to do the right thing in spite of the danger. Now let's push further into this. Courage isn't just facing physical death. Courage isn't just facing physical death or a threat to your life. There are countless stories of men coming home from battle where on the battlefield, they would charge machine gun outposts. They would charge machine gun nests, exemplifying tremendous bravery on the battlefield. But when they got home, they lived lives of cowardice. They could face physical danger with courage, but they could never admit they were wrong in their marriage. They could never admit weakness in their marriage. And as a result, made an absolute wreck of their marriages. Or they couldn't stand the thought of losing face, and so they had to lie in their business pursuits. How is it men who charge machine gun nests in wars could come home and never admit weakness in their marriage? Never admit weakness in their business pursuits. How is that possible? Alfred Adler, who's a psychologist, is helpful in thinking through this. 
He contends that if you want to know what your heart really wants in life, if you want to know what your heart is really hoping in, where your real meaning in life is, where your main motivational, motivational drive is, you want to find where that is, look at your biggest nightmares, your greatest fears. Your greatest fears aren't the same as the next person's greatest fears. Think about the, the ancient warriors of history in battle. You know the stories. In battle, when they realized they had been defeated, what did they do? They committed suicide. They fell on their swords, right? That was supposed to be a thing of honor. Yeah? Their greatest nightmare was not physical death. It was humiliation. And they couldn't face it. So suicide was an act of cowardice. See, this is what's missing in Saul and Israel. Courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. It's facing your particular heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. Let's, let's think about a couple of examples of missing courage. Let me try to make the case to you that workaholism is actually cowardice. It's an inability to face one's greatest nightmare. Well, how so? Well, workaholism could be driven by numerous sources of fear. Let's just take one example. Some people become workaholics out of a desire to be highly esteemed in their career, highly esteemed in their field. They want prestige from their peers. Their heart's greatest nightmare is to be unknown or to be seen as mediocre or to be seen as someone who's not the leader of the pack. So instead of doing the right thing in the face of their fear by keeping work hours to reasonable proportions, they become cowards by working all the time. Workaholism, underneath all the surface, get rid of all the junk on the top, workaholism, underneath, is an inability to face your heart's greatest nightmare and do the right thing anyway. What about someone who's assertively opinionated? We all have these folks in our lives, right? Someone who loves expressing their opinions, and when they do, they have enormous confidence in those opinions. Someone will say, well, that's just my personality. That's hogwash. That's not a personality issue. Proverbs 18.2 says, Fools delight in airing their own opinions. Fools delight in airing their own opinions. So how is being assertively opinionated cowardice? Well, just like workaholism, the motivational force behind this could come from numerous places. But one of those is control. Opinionated people are often control freaks. Their heart's greatest nightmare is losing control, not having control, relinquishing control to someone else, having to live in a reality other than the one they want and desire, a reality created by someone else, a fear of having to live in a reality created by someone else. So instead of doing the right thing in learning to defer to others and to defer to God's providential ordering of even the minutia of your life, 
They take the cowardly way out by controlling everything through airing their opinions. The assertively opinionated are unable to face their heart's greatest nightmare and do the right thing anyway. Your heart's greatest nightmare is different than the person sitting next to you. But your heart does have a greatest nightmare. Do you know what it is? You know what it is. Courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. This is something Saul and Israel could not do. Second, false courage. Goliath epitomizes this. Now, on the surface, it doesn't look like there's anything false to Goliath's courage. He looks like the real deal. The narrator paints one of the most detailed physical descriptions of any character in the Old Testament. Goliath is over nine feet tall. He wears a coat of metallic armor that weighs 126 pounds. The tip of his spear alone is 15 pounds. Imagine attaching a bowling ball to the end of a stick and trying to throw that. That's how heavy this thing is. Goliath is given tremendous detail in his description, which is rare in Hebrew literature. We're reading modern day literature and we come across a paragraph that describes the physical appearance of some character in the story. Usually, the reason the author is doing that is to paint a picture that we carry around with us in our heads through the duration of the story. Hebrew literature does not work that way. It was terse, it was sparse. If there's an extended description of someone or something, it's to, it's to create meaning, not just create a picture. Robert Alter, who is a Hebrew literature scholar, writes on this description of Goliath. This way he says, the thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action as a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero, a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. What Alter is saying is that the author, the author's unusually extensive description of Goliath, this author is giving us two alternate conceptions of power. Two alternate conceptions of heroism. Two alternate versions of dealing with fear. That's the intent of the narrator. The narrator is putting all this in there to show you what Goliath hangs on. What makes him him. How he approaches the challenges of life. How he approaches fear. How he approaches the next mountain he has to climb. Goliath banishes fearful thoughts how? By looking at himself with confidence. By building into yourself. By consuming into yourself. He's saying... Now, look at me. So Goliath is portrayed as a man of incredible physical prowess. He's high-tech in his armament. Iron and bronze were incredibly rare at this time, but he's got the cutting-edge technology. He has tremendous self-esteem. Now, there is no evidence in the text itself that he possesses any fears or doubts or a sense of danger. And this is the way the world gives you courage. 
Let's just get that out there. This is the way the world gives you courage. This is the way it calls you to courage. It happens a lot in counseling. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to get you to visualize success. Yeah? Visualize success. This happens a lot in sports, right? Visualize catching the touchdown. Visualize making the 35-yard field goal at Lambeau Field to win the game in overtime. This is the way the world tells you to do with your fears. Visualizing success. Banishing fearful thoughts by looking at yourself with confidence. 2014 was a history-making year for golfer Rory McIlroy. He won uh, two of the four majors, and at that time he, he struck a deal uh, to do a commercial for Omega Watches. And the soundtrack, and, and if I'm right on this, he got to pick the music for it. The soundtrack to this commercial ran ad nauseum. The song is Hall of Fame by the script. If you go on YouTube uh, and you look up the music video for this song, it has 361 million views. If you're not familiar with YouTube, that's a lot. It's a lot. That is a lot of people who have soaked in this message that the song offers. Now, musically, it's very catchy. And musically, it's really well written. But, lyrically, it reads just like what I've been saying about false courage. Listen to the lyrics. You could be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. You could beat the world. You could beat the war. You could talk to God, go banging on His door. You can throw your hands up. You can beat the clock. You can move a mountain. You can break rocks. You can be a master. Don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself and you can find yourself standing in the Hall of Fame. And the world's going to know your name because you burn with the brightest flame. And the world's going to know your name and you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. You could go the distance. You could run the mile. You could walk straight through hell with a smile. You could be the hero. You could get the gold, breaking all the records that thought never could be broke. Do it for your people. Do it for your pride. How are you ever going to know if you never even try? Do it for your country. Do it for your name. Because there's going to be a day when you're standing in the Hall of Fame and the world's going to know your name. Because you burn with the brightest flame. And the world's going to know your name and you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. This message is a recipe for disaster. Be a hero by looking at yourself with confidence. There are deep problems with this. And the text alludes to it. Let's think about this together. Inside the story, okay, so inside the story, does Goliath perceive there to be any threats to him? No. Outside the story, as you and I read it, does Goliath face any danger? We know how the story goes. Inside the story, does Goliath perceive himself to be vulnerable? Outside the story, is he? We know how the story goes. He's completely unaware of it. 
Is he not? This makes him incredibly vulnerable to danger. Banishing fear by looking at yourself with confidence, here's what it does. It puts you out of touch with reality. This is, the, this is what he's facing. He is out of, completely out of touch with reality. Banishing fear by looking at yourself with confidence puts, yourself, puts you out of touch with reality. I got news for you, and I'm sorry if I'm the one to break this to you. The world is filled with dangers. Have you read a newspaper late recently? To believe otherwise is unrealistic. See, courage, listen, courage isn't the ability to face life as if nothing is a threat to you. That's not courage. That's counterfeit courage. That's Goliath courage. Banishing fear by looking at yourself with confidence puts you out of touch with reality, and it makes you vulnerable to dangers you wouldn't otherwise be vulnerable to. That's one reason why this message is a recipe for disaster. There's another reason, though. There's another reason that this kind of courage is problematic, and that it relies on adrenaline. Short-term spurts. Go watch the music video. What's it designed to do? To get all sorts of adrenaline firing through your body so you can go out there for the next two minutes and do something. But what if you have a long haul in front of you? Will it work? What if you're looking at facing months in a battle against cancer? Will it work? What happens if you have a long haul in front of you and there is no prospect for success? Edith Course Evans was an upper-class passenger on the Titanic. When the Titanic was going down, she was making her way to the lifeboat. And when she got there, she discovered that there was only one seat left and it had been reserved for her. But when she realized the woman behind her had children back in New York City, she looked at her and said, I have no children. There's no one back in New York for me. You should go. And she gave this other woman her seat on the lifeboat. Edith Corse Evans perished at sea. Now, where do you get the courage to do something when there's no way you're going to get through it? You think Edith did this through visualization? Is that how she did this? Just visualizing success? doesn't work that way. Getting courage is not brought about by banishing fear and looking at yourself with confidence. So, what is true courage? What is true courage? Let's look at it. What we really need is something that helps us do the right thing in spite of our fears. We need something in our lives that overwhelms our fears that offsets the fears. You want true courage? You need something in your life that overwhelms the fears, that offsets the fears. Now, typically with the David and Goliath story, we read verses 45 and 46, where David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Now, we look at those verses and say, ah, yes. There it is. The key to true courage is to have faith like David. If you have faith like David, then you will knock your giants to the ground. 
But think about it. When people say, if you have faith like David, then God will be able to work in your life and you'll be able to handle life. Do you know what that is? That's just a spiritualized version of Goliath courage. Why? Because you're looking at yourself. You're looking at your faith. And a lot of people walk around with this mindset. If I truly believe God, if I trust God, if I muster up enough trust and faith, belief in God, then he'll grant me success. He won't let anything bad happen to me. That's looking at yourself. It's still looking at yourself. It's a spiritualized version of Goliath courage. You're looking at yourself and trying to banish all thoughts that anything bad would happen to you on the basis of that. But look, is that biblical? Can you take me to a verse that says God would never let bad things happen to those who have David-like faith? There's John the Baptist, a man of extraordinary faith. Oops, beheaded. There's Jesus. See, true courage isn't just banishing fears. It's not looking at yourself or anything you possess with confidence. It's getting something in your life that enables you to do the right thing in spite of your fears. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, let's not insert ourselves into this story where people typically insert themselves. Where do we usually put ourselves? the protagonist. We're the hero. Everybody does that. You're reading a book or watching a movie. We put ourselves in the place of the hero. That's who I am. Let's not do that. We're not David. We're the cowards. We're Saul. We're Israel. We're the community of faith. And if someone doesn't save them from their cowardice, Their lives are going down the tubes. And that's where we are. So what does God do? He sends a Savior for cowards. He sends a Savior for cowards. He does not send them an example. David doesn't come to Israel and say to them, hey, let's huddle up here. Let's all charge them together. You can do it. Just visualize us chopping them to pieces. God does not send these cowards an example. He does not save them through inspiration. He does not save them through emulation. He saves them through imputation. He saves cowards through imputation. What do I mean by that? Have you ever noticed when you're reading this story that when Goliath comes forward, he he calls Israel to select a singular man to come out and fight him? You ever think that was odd? I mean, why not, Goliath, why not just like lead the whole thing into, you know, and collide in the valley of all the armies? No, he calls one singular man. Select one man to come and fight me. What is this? This is representational fighting. This was a thing in the ancient world. As Israel's representational fighter, David is not fighting for Israel. He's fighting as Israel. If Israel wins, if David wins, Israel will be treated as if they fought and won. If David loses, Israel will be treated as if Israel fought and lost. David's victory was ascribed to Israel. Cowards were saved through imputation. Now, this points forward 
to another time when cowards would be saved through imputation. In Hebrews 12, we're exhorted to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and archegos. Literally, champion of our faith. Jesus fought as if he were us. He ran as if he were us. He lived as if he were us. He died as if he was us. And as a result, the Father treats us as if we are him. Jesus' victory has been ascribed to us. Now in that same passage, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The, the cross that Jesus faced was of cataclysmic proportions. It's unlike any giant you and I will ever face. And one of the things that we're told here is that Jesus put in front of him a joy in order to face the giant. A joy in order to face the challenge. Now, as far as I can tell, there was only one joy Jesus didn't already have at the time. Redeemed people. Adopted sons and daughters. He didn't have you. For the joy of having you and his family, Jesus endured the cross. Let me tie this back to courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the presence of joy. It's not the absence of fear. It's the presence of joy. Courage is possessing enough joy that you're not afraid of the future. Courage is setting something in front of you so joy-filled you're able to face your heart's greatest nightmare. Has Jesus become that for you? I tell you what, every other kind of joy is a counterfeit joy and will not be able to offset the fear you face in life. Courage is setting something in front of you so joy-filled. So joy-filled. You're able to face your heart's greatest nightmare. My daughter Taylor has not been blessed with cavity-repelling teeth. I think she was four years old. She had a dentist appointment. I forget how many of the dentists found in there, but there were two, three, four cavities in there. So the four-year-old has to go under the dreaded dentist drill. Being the loving father I am, I told her the truth. The dentist is going to use a drill, much like the one your mother uses around the house. I did not say that, for the record. Uh, but, I mean, she asked about it, so we're, she's getting the picture. She's getting the picture, and, I'm, and it was met with some tears. Okay, It was met with some tears. Now, it just happens... That, that after this dentist appointment where she would have her cavities taken care of, our family was going to spend a couple of days at the Wisconsin Dells. 
Thank you, Jesus, for that. What do you think we did? Oh, did we play that up. We dangled that in front of her before, in the run-up to, during the appointment. She was so excited about this. She just knew she had to get past this drilling stuff and then we could get on with the Dells. What were we doing? What was she experiencing? There was an exceeding joy her heart was looking forward to that enabled her to face her little heart's greatest nightmare. We adults are just like kids. A little more complicated, sure, but we're just like kids. We need an exceeding joy in our hearts to look forward to that enables us to face our heart's greatest nightmare. And the only joy that measures up is the joy that awaits those who fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and champion of our faith. Let's pray. Loving Father, give us an indescribable, unassailable steadfastness in the joy You've provided for us in Jesus Christ. He was and is our representational champion fighter. He has lived the perfect life for us. He has died the death our sins rightly deserved. And because of that, the verdict of innocence has already been declared of those who fix their eyes on Him. Father, impress on our hearts the joy of this salvation. As this joy takes root, God, may we find ourselves able to face our heart's greatest nightmare and do the right thing anyway. May we be people not of false courage, Goliath courage, but true courage rooted in the joy of being the blood-bought people of the King. Restore to us, even now, the joy of this salvation for Your glory alone. Amen.